HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for the 2023 conference, featuring more than 90 in-person sessions and 25 virtual sessions on farming and food systems. Learn more at pasafarming.org conference. Well, my first memory was about yogurt. I wondered how it's possible that milk becomes solid or somehow solid. So I asked my mom, my dad, but no one knew anything about that. So I started researching. And I was very, very small. I was like five years old, six years old. So I started with a yogurt machine. It's classical. We know everyone now, but in the 70s, it was not very common. And so my interest for fermentation started because all this uh, like magical transformation of food did fascinate me. And uh, after that, I started making uh, some sauerkraut, some bread with sourdough, and slowly, slowly growing, I started doing it with beer and uh, distillation and wine. And it was not a matter of drinking because I wanted to drink. I didn't like wine, for example, but the transformation was the point, point of interest for me. That was Carlo Nessler, an innovative creator of fermented food products. HRN caught up with him at Slow Foods Salone del Gusto in Italy this September. Carlo turned that early fascination into a career promoting the wonders of fermentation. Drawing inspiration from around the world and often exploring new takes on traditional staples. Whether it's sour beer or black garlic, fermentation could be viewed as a process of controlled decay. In this episode, we look beyond fermented foods for other examples of transformation or deterioration in the food system. From composting for environmental justice to recent declines in restaurant industry margins, we're taking a look at the myriad uses and consequences of decay. I'm Matt Patterson, and this is Meat and 3 on HRN. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. 
When I say decay, what comes to mind? Rotting fruit? Broken machinery? Decay can also catalyze opportunities for restoration. Scott Kellogg is a manager at the Radix Center, an organization working to provide green spaces, fresh food access, employment opportunities, and environmental education to South Albany. This past March, Scott sat down with the hosts of Fields, Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Wist, to discuss Radix's mission and the decades-long environmental injustice faced by New York's capital. It's a, a, a city marked and defined and, and, and honestly carved up by a number of poorly thought out urban renewal schemes that were enacted in the mid 20th century, chiefly among them being the construction of the Empire Plaza, which is a massive complex that houses state government offices that resulted in the displacement of thousands of people. One of the highest per capita displacements of an urban population as a consequence of an urban renewal program in the country Uh, that literally bisected the city. That, in addition to the construction of Interstate 787, which is uh, an interstate highway that runs parallel to the Hudson River, which has done a couple things, cut off everybody's access to the river, making it physically difficult to actually get to the banks of it. That also had the effect of um, facilitating suburban commuting and the disinvestment of the urban core. This went hand in hand with racist policies such as redlining to create massive disinvestment in particular neighborhoods, including the south end of Albany. Due to this disinvestment, South Albany has an abundance of abandoned land, or really, asphalt. But where others saw trash, debris, and abandoned cars, Radix saw opportunity, and they transformed a one-acre parcel in the middle of the city. And so we spent a good number of years really just uh, removing debris and tearing up asphalt, and have since begun the work of building up the health of the soils, which is uh, the first step towards in- increasing your capacity to grow food and to build food security and build sovereignty and food justice within a community. And have slowly added in sustainable systems to Radix and integrated with them with one another. These include, as you mentioned, a solar greenhouse. This is great as an educational center because kids can come there in the middle of the winter and if the sun is shining, it'll be 75, 80 degrees in there, even if it's zero degrees outdoors. Urban soils are often contaminated, degraded, or non-existent. Radix wants to rehabilitate them with an abundant resource, trash. The good news is it's, it's possible to regenerate the health of soils. And this, the means to do that is right at our fingertips in the form of the huge amounts of organic matter that's getting thrown away in the landfill every day in the form of food scraps and brown leaves and wood chips and grass clippings and all this one's living matter. And what we need to be doing is intercepting all that organic matter and composting it aerobically on the surface of the planet and using the completed soil, the finished compost to build soil where it doesn't exist to regenerate its health Composting seems like an easy fix. After all, how hard is it to obtain organic waste? In fact, pretty difficult. So much so that Scott addresses the structural barriers of compost access in his newly published book, Urban Ecosystem Justice Strategies for Equitable Sustainability 
and ecological literacy in the city. But for Scott, composting's seemingly endless benefits make it something worth fighting for, so everyone can reap the rewards. So many reasons to compost, right, beyond just trying to prevent methane from escaping and, and reducing climate change, regenerating the health of soils and providing jobs for people. And to think about the connection between environmental justice and composting. It's really important to make sure that composting remains a process that is decentralized and horizontally distributed and controlled by environmental justice communities. And to be careful not to let the so-called titans of trash come in and dominate those markets and be processing it at megascale facilities outside of the city limits. In South Albany, decay has been the reality of the city for decades. But composting and the fight for compost justice highlight a newfound hope and an opportunity for the region to flourish. The landfill might be a source of potential compostable material, but as we alluded to in our first story, our trash and recycling processes are complicated. And not just politically. On episode 157 of Eating Matters back in 2020, Ev Crundon discussed the perilous journey garbage must take to reach its destination. U.S. consumers generate a lot of waste, um, and we're pretty unique in the amount of waste that we generate. If you look at like a lot of countries that have really become the dumping ground uh, for Western countries, and you know they're dealing with a much different situation where it's like they have all of their own waste, and then they have everyone else's waste. Pretty typically, uh, you put out, you know, your trash, and then Republic has, um, you know, a truck, and they'll drive up, and they'll take it. Um, a lot of times, then, it will go to a transfer station. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's, like, kind of a smaller uh, midway facility, and they're going to grind down your trash and kind of, like, package it up. And then it's going to go to a bigger haul or, like, a bigger truck, uh, and then it could be carted any number of places, uh, sometimes, like, states and states away depending on where you live. Um, So it can be a very involved, very, very long-term process. As trash and recycling travels further and further from its original source, the process only gets messier. So a recycling facility, um, which is, it's a materials recovery facility or a MRF, um, Mm -hmm. you know, typically in a MRF, you know, a plastic bag is going to serve as a contaminant because it's going to mess with the machine. So you have all of your recyclables, you know, they go to the MRF. And typically, you know, you sort them out. Um, Merc jams are very common, which is when, you know, some some well-meaning human, uh, you know, put all their stuff into a plastic bag and then they put it into the recycling bin. It comes to the Merc. It jams everything. Mm. Business stops while they, like, fish out your plastic bag. Um, well, that's pretty commonplace. Um, and then, you know, typically whatever contaminants are in the waste stream are going to get sorted out. Um, those are going to get sent over to the nearest landfill or wherever. And as Ev explains, these recycling jams also occur on a global scale. It's true that uh, Americans have never been uh, very good at recycling or mm-hmm. at understanding, but, you know, just a long history of contamination, um, general lack of knowledge about the system. And for a very long time, um, you know, we exported um, a lot of our contaminated recyclables, and they typically went uh, to Asian markets. And then, cue 
since the crash of 2017-2018 uh, um, when China implemented um, what everyone in the, the wastes calls a national sword, uh, the official title. Um, you'll hear them just talk about it flippantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that policy basically banned um, a bunch of the recyclables and then also implemented ridiculously low uh, cutoffs for contamination um, to the extent that there was just no way uh, that the U.S. was going to meet it. Mm-hmm. And so China basically had a hard stop and was like, we're not taking it anymore. Um, and then a number of Southeast Asian countries similarly said, yeah, we're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> um, and at that point, really, really deep ramifications um, for U.S. recycling because, you know, all these contracts, these programs all just set up around the idea that no matter what, your recyclables are going somewhere and and they weren't going there anymore. Yet no matter where the trash goes, nature prevails and it begins to decay. But is it really that uncomplicated? The process may not start until hundreds of years have passed and some substances don't break down at all. It depends on what's in the landfill. Um, obviously, organics are going to be um, breaking down. Right. They're going to become methane. Um, <laughs> you know, you have debates about, like, how long it takes plastic to break down. Um, Forever. I've, yeah. I've seen, yeah, like 500 years. So PFAS, <laughs> um, which have a, have a longer name, it's an, ap- an acronym, um, but they're a family of a, more than 5,000 uh, chemical substances. And they... Getting a lot of traction, you know, several of them have been um, pretty definitively linked to cancer um, and a number of other uh, very bad uh, health risks. Wow. And um, because of the reach of these chemicals, they're in a lot of things, and that means they're in pretty much every single landfill. Mm-hmm. And then because the PFAS, they're called forever chemicals because uh, they don't break down, so then it's in your water. PFAS aren't the only concerning byproduct that can result in acute and chronic health problems. To be fair um, to a lot of these companies and and these sites, um, there are a lot of protections in place. um, But that having been said, the methane is kind of hard to avoid. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, organics uh, decompose. um, They do release warming gases. Um, Some, you know, operators have landfill gas systems in place that are collecting it. But even then, you know still only so much you can mitigate that problem. Um, And there are other concerns. I mean, in terms of odors, um, odors are unpleasant, but they also typically are a sign that there are like chemicals and other problems. So for a lot of communities, you know, and and it's definitely disproportionately lower income communities, communities of color. um, So those tend to be the people who are very close to landfills. And, you know, I've definitely talked to people who report health problems, dizziness, uh, you know, their animals get sick, their kids get sick. Um, So there are some legitimate concerns. And I think a lot of it, you know, really boils down to whether or not a company is doing their due diligence. But even if they are, you know, hard to be 100% in the clear. Decay is a natural part of life on Earth. When things decompose, it leaves opportunity for growth and cultivation. But the United States' waste infrastructure and American overconsumption complicate this natural process. With valuable insight from Ev Crunden, we can work towards a future that maintains the delicate balance of growth and decay. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break.
cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower. Register now for PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2023 conference. Access more than 100 sessions on topics including environmental conservation, food justice, sustainable food and textile production, renewable energy, and much more. Featuring a not-to-be-missed lineup of speakers, including indigenous environmental scientist and author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Jessica Hernandez, Scottish farmer and co-producer of the podcast Landed, Cole Gordon, best-selling author of The Art of Fermentation, Sandor Katz, co-owners of Heritage Seed Company True Love Seeds, Owen Taylor and Chris Bolden Newsom, and many more. There are two ways to attend, virtually or in person. PASA's virtual conference takes place January 17th through 19th. Join from anywhere. PASA's in-person conference is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 11th and includes social and networking events plus an expansive trade show. Register now at pasafarming.org conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org conference. Welcome back to Meetin' 3. Across the African continent, large-scale agricultural projects run by international corporations pose a threat to natural resources. Although these projects promise economic revitalization and food security, the result is often dried-out land, depleted waterways, and decaying ways of life. Anurada Mittal is the founder and director of the Oakland Institute, an organization which supports communities exploited by industrial agricultural sites. She spoke with Katie Kiefer on What Doesn't Kill You about the Institute's findings on agricultural projects in Africa. This large-scale investment that is happening is often for export agriculture. This is not about feeding Africa, but very often it is for using the land and water of African countries to produce things like palm oil, as you find Indonesia, uh, Malaysia kind of saturated in terms of the need for palm oil. You know, investors are looking at Africa, how to grow palm oil there. I'll also mention in some of the cases, countries like Zambia have been uh, pressured that when you get a lot of investment, you have to make commitments that you would allow exports of 80% of the food that is produced in your country, even if there's a food shortage. Although it is apparent that these industrial agricultural projects do not have the well-being of local people in mind, African governments continue to allow land and water grabbing to occur, hoping these projects will lead to economic prosperity. When you look at land deals, which include, you know, involve hundreds of thousands of hectares, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of football fields given away right. at very cheap prices. Investors want not just land, but they also want reliable access to water. So what is really happening, as we detail in the report, is that water rights that small farmers or fisher folk and pastoralists have held for centuries in an informal way, they are being threatened today. So the report details the loss of vital access to water resources. Uh, We have several instances in the report where you find that these so-called agricultural projects lead to the loss of streams and swamps which are diverted or destroyed to actually establish plantations. Lack of regulation is a major issue concerning industrial agricultural projects in Africa. Multinational corporations such as the World Bank and its agency, the International Finance Corporation, or IFC, 
are often left to their own devices, not only in terms of access to resources, but in establishing and maintaining ethical practices as well. This leaves the fate of local communities in their hands. Unfortunately, ethical standards are frequently neglected, destroying the finite resources these communities have access to. Even when companies have contractual promises Mm -hmm. to supply communities adjacent to their projects with clean water, they have failed to materialize. So in the best case scenarios where companies have built or rehabilitated boreholes or wells, to compensate the loss of pollution of water sources, communities still report the numbers to be too low or water supply to be inadequate, especially in dry season. But Katie, you mentioned the pollution of water sources. That is something that we found to be so evident across the establishment of these large-scale industrial plantations, which in the name of development are actually, you know, is really about intensive use of chemicals and pesticides in industrial agriculture, which has resulted in significant pollution in all cases reviewed. Anurata highlighted how these agricultural projects threaten not only traditional ways of life, but also limit future opportunities and potential progress for these communities. She says African women are particularly at risk. Loss of access to water impacts women and young women much more because they have to deal with longer trekking times and possibly much more difficult paths which sometimes can put their own personal security at risk when they're fetching water for their daily household tasks, Uh, and sometimes multiple times per day. One of the biggest threats of that is that uh, young women and their access to education is being impacted because very often you'll find young girls are being told to fetch water for the family instead of going to school and the impact that has long-term on their lives. The false promises of industrial agricultural projects echo the historical exploitation of African countries for the benefit of Western entities. Organizations such as the Oakland Institute attempt to disrupt this pattern, but widespread education is necessary to create a larger voice to combat this injustice. In the past few years, we have seen restaurants pushed to the extreme, fighting to stay alive during the stillness of the pandemic. And now, even as restaurants fill up with that familiar, vibrant energy, we see the toll of our current economic crisis take hold. On episode 49 of The Big Food Question, producer Elba Tamara Rodriguez asks, how can restaurants survive inflation? In March the United States saw the highest rate of inflation in more than 40 years at 8.5%. And if that wasn't hitting restaurants hard enough, the rate climbed to 9.1% in June. If restaurants can't survive inflation, people lose their livelihoods and consequently some lose their homes. In order to understand the extent of inflation's impact to the restaurant industry, we first need to understand what exactly inflation is. To learn more, Elba spoke with CUNY economics professor Mara Uchtum. Inflation is really measures the cost of living index, um, increase in the cost of living for a typical consumer. Just about most of the things that you want to buy will be more expensive. Mm -hmm. And it will be uh, more expensive not one time, but for the next several months. So in other words, it's not only one time increase, it's it's a continuous increase. So there are um, several reasons why it happens and um, the 
sad thing is that right now all of the reasons are happening. So there are basically uh, three reasons for inflation to happen. One is in economics, we have the supply demand, right? And um, so you can have uh, a shock or a, a disturbance to the, from the supply side. You can have something happening from the demand side. And then there's a third thing that happens is because everybody's expecting inflations to rise in the future and the prices to rise, continue to rise in the future. And so this is the expectation. So when people start believing that, that's also a third reason. Now let's think about this from a restaurant's perspective. All of a sudden, restaurants are seeing fewer and fewer customers coming in, leading to less profit than projected. This compels them to buy less from their suppliers and those suppliers to buy less from their suppliers. The interconnectedness of customers, restaurant owners, and suppliers leads to a domino effect. To understand the restaurant's perspective, Elba speaks to Ivelisse Rossi, co-owner of Refried Beans, a Tex-Mex restaurant in the uptown Manhattan neighborhood of Washington Heights. How is the restaurant dealing with inflation? Have you had to increase your menu prices? I had done it like twice already, but the inflation is so high that... I mean, I'm, I don't recover yet from the last winters. And how much can you increase a quesadilla or a taco? How, how high can you go? Right now it's like $15 in here. But to go, I have it in a lower price because this is a market I don't want to kill. I'd rather make less money than lose, you know, because it's a, you know, it's a revenue that is, I'm getting from there. Just two years ago, the quesadilla was priced at $11.95, and diners of the local restaurant are feeling the increase. Restaurants are forced into this delicate balancing act, not wanting to price themselves out with their customers, and yet needing to increase their prices to survive in an inflated market. So, how do they continue to bring in customers while combating inflation? David Lindsay, co-owner of the Kingsbridge Social Club, offered his approach when Elba spoke with him at his restaurant in Kingsbridge Heights. I think the biggest thing is just, you know, really make sure you step up on on your social media presence, you know, like realize the things that you're good at and the things that you're not good at. So we've talked about inflation ad nauseum and how it's affecting restaurants and the supply chain. But why does it matter? I am a I'm brand relatively new in the restaurant industry as far as owning goes. So I have all of my livelihood invested in this one restaurant. I, I, I don't have enough money to be able to, like, you know, invest in multiple places. So, yeah, it is, it's everything. That's, you know, why I spend the amount of time here that I do. For some people, it's not just a restaurant. It's everything. Restaurants are a beloved part of our culture, a place for us to meet and connect with each other over food. As we continue to navigate this new economic landscape, it's helpful to remember the role that customers can play in keeping our favorite establishments afloat.
Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Stella Maiden, Kayla Legrand, and Rana Rudy. Meet and Three is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Katie Moseman Wadler, and me, Matt Patterson. Our audio engineer for this episode is Kevin Chang Barnum. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.